Okay, I want to talk about work and tell you something about what the Bible is teaching about work and tell you something about what the Bible's talking about in terms of the work of the Lord in particular. So we're going to do a quick canter through all kinds of parts of the Bible, starting, of course, in Genesis 1, verses 26, when God creates humanity. And in his creation of humanity, of man, he created man in his own image, 127. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing, creature that moves on the ground. That is, God created humans to look after his world, to care for it, to subdue it, it wasn't created perfect to notice. Most of our theology say it was created perfect, but there's no reason to, to subdue it. But he's created us as one humanity. It's not that he created lots of men, lots of women. He created man, mankind, humanity. Of course, he wanted us to fill, be fruitful and increase, which is why he created us male and female. So that out of our one binary sexual reproductive unit, we would be able to create one expanding humanity who would be able to rule over all the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, you get a close-up look at it. You know those art books where you see the big picture, you turn the page and they give you a little detail, all blown up so you can see the detail very clearly. Chapter 2, you see the detail. Man is created, the man is placed in the garden and the reason he's placed in the garden is to care for the garden, to look after the garden. He's, that is the job that he has been given to uh, as the gardener in the garden. But then woman is created and she is created as his helper, not as a second gardener, uh, but as his helper in that other primary task that God has given to us to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. So as soon as he sees her, uh, this man, the man says in ch chapter 2 verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and the two of them will go gardening together. Is not actually what is being said there is it? But be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and felt no shame. Chapter 3, we see, of course, sin. The, the, the terrible failure to keep the one real commandment that God has given them. Because back in chapter 2, verse 16, uh, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's not for nothing that the tree is called the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just any tree, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge that God has of good and evil, which is the, God, which is the determiner of good and evil. For that is how God knows good and evil. For when the man and the woman eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes are open and they become like God. That is, Satan's temptation is half true. Now, I don't want to tell you how to tell lies, but let me give you a piece of advice about telling lies. The more truth you can wrap the lie in, the more believable it is. When you tell a lie that is completely false, it generally doesn't work. But when that's 99% true, people will take the lie in that other 1%. 
And so Satan says, if you eat of this, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. God doesn't want you to be like God. Ah, but they were created like God. They were created in the image of God. But there's one likeness to God, one image of God they didn't have. They, they weren't to be the determiners of good and evil. But now, in eating the fruit of the tree of the good and evil, they become like God. Look down to the end of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 22. 3, verse 22. And the Lord God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. How does God know evil? Not by experiencing it. That's not how he knows evil, does he? So that's not how he knows good either. He knows good and evil because he's the determiner of what is good and what is evil. But now humans are being the determiners of good and evil, which is when they immediately see that they're naked and cover themselves. And so God meets to them. The creation follows a very clear pattern. That is, God has created the humans and the man and then the animal to help the man, but none of the animals were suitable to help the man. And so the woman, who is the only suitable one to be united sexually in reproduction, and so here is, now comes the reversal of everything. God speaks to the man. And the man, you know, have you eaten of this fruit? And he says, no. The woman that you gave me, it's a real double, it's not my fault, you know, it's her fault, it's your fault. Uh, the woman you gave me, she, she is, and so then God addresses the woman, who immediately says, the serpent. You see, the animal has undermined the woman who's undermined the man. God approaches the man who points to the woman who points to the animal. God then judges the animal in that wonderful verse in chapter 3 verse 16 about the fact that he will crawl on the dust and 15, God will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel which is the very beginning of the gospel because that's speaking of Jesus. But then he says to the woman... I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing and with pain you will give birth to the children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Which then is the charter of the difficulty of life that women have had ever since and continue to have. Uh, the pain in childbearing is not just uh, the, the confinement pain, it's the whole gynaecological problems that come because of being the childbearers. Uh, we don't have androcological hospitals, hospitals for men only. We do have gynecological hospitals for women only because the physiology of women as childbearers is just so complex and difficult and involves so many pains and difficulties in life. And the conflict with her husband and the fact of women being ill-treated by men is built into the judgment of God, which is an awful, awful thing. And then the man, you see, the woman was created for relationship with a man and for the reproduction and she's cursed in reproduction and relationship with a man. The man was created to be the gardener and now cursed be the ground because of you through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat the food and you will return to the ground since you are taken from it. Dust you are, dust you'll return. So man in his gardening is immediately affected. So work now becomes difficult. Whereas in the garden everything was set to be easy and, 
and wonderful for us. Now, because we've decided to determine what we should do, that we are the rulers of ourselves, now we're in conflict at the very point of our creation. We're in difficulty at the very point of our creation. Uh, this is not to say that men have nothing to do with children and child raising and, and childbearing. It's uh, not saying anything that women have nothing to do with gardening either. But it's interesting that the point at which we are created becomes the point at which we are now uh, in, in pain and difficulty. The next great passage to draw your attention to is chapter 11. It's a passage we know we get taught in Sunday school, but adults don't take seriously enough, I feel. Now, the whole world had one language and common speech and as men moved eastward they found the plain of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We see now human technology in work. They go to a place where there are no stones, they create stones, they create bricks, they create mortar, they build a tower. They build a tower, they use their work to invade heaven. They're going to build a tower that is going to get them to heaven. They're using their work for their salvation. And they're using the work to overcome judgment. Within the Bible you'll constantly see this theme. Gathering people together is salvation. Dispersing people and separating people and driving people, scattering people is judgment. They want to gather everybody together around the tower which reaches to heaven and to make a name for themselves. Well, you think about it, what do you mean make a name for yourself? There's only humanity. I mean, the animals are not going to start calling you by this name. It's the reputation. It's that we are the rulers of this world together because one humanity is still there there's not many humanities there's one humanity all relatives but the Lord came down see the city that the tower that the men were building and the Lord said if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them isn't that an incredible statement at verse 6 nothing is impossible for humans to do if we all work together. It's an incredible statement. But God says that's not going to happen. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped the building. And that's why it's called Babel because that's where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God confounds our plans because we are now unsuitable to rule the world. <laughs> Every time someone tries to rule the world, we find how unsuitable we are. Uh, in the 19th century, they decided, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the First Vatican Council tried to uh, establish the infallibility of the Pope. One of the things the Roman Catholic Church does is appoint someone to argue the alternative case, the devil's advocate, as they're called. The devil's advocate in this case was a man called Lord Acton, and he argued against papal infallibility. And in his argument, he used a very famous line, which is 
now often quoted, but most people don't know where it's come from. Uh, he said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's why we mustn't have an infallible Pope, you see. Uh, the, the argument's wrong. Power does not corrupt, and absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. But corrupt people will use power to expand and extend their corruption. And if you give them absolute power, they will be absolutely corrupt. But corruption precedes power. God is all-powerful, but he's not corrupt. It's not power that corrupts. It's corrupt hearts that exercise power corruptly. That's the problem. And that's why God could not allow man to invade heaven and save himself because man is corrupt. And because we're corrupt, we are not fit to rule the world. We are totally unsuitable to rule the world. And whenever we give people power from the extreme of, of Hitler and Stalin and, and Lenin and Mao to the not-so-extreme democratic leaders, whenever we give them power, they always demonstrate their corruption. And the longer they last, the more they do. In Australia, we never vote anybody in. We just vote people out regularly, consistently. We've had about 10 prime ministers this century. Uh, we, we really, because we never trust anybody with any power, for very good reasons, they always goof off. Because the only kind of politician you can elect is a corrupt one. Because all people are sinful. Now, understanding the universality of sin leads you to democracy. The, the way of getting rid of people from power which means your government will always be ineffective, which is pretty much the case, as you see. Um, effective governments are dictatorships, and they're corrupt. So there's your choice in life, you see. Have a government that can do something that you wouldn't want, or having a government that can't do anything, which is safer. Right? And so it was Churchill, wasn't it, who said that democracy is the... What, what's the phrase he used? Uh, the best form of, of a bad thing. Uh, really, it's not his words. He had better words than I do on that. So there's work. You can use your work to save yourself, but God won't let you. You can use work to make... See, it's the search for meaning. Come with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Now, in Ecclesiastes... He's viewing life under the sun, uh, without the word of God sharing light on it really, although he can't help himself and the word of God keeps popping in. But he's viewing life as, as you can see it. And pick it up verse 12, I, teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem and I devoted myself to study, to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. So he sets himself the task of finding meaning in what is being done. What's the purpose of it all? And he does it by all kinds of man means. So chapter 2 verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? 
Uh, then so down verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards, made gardens, parks, etc. And of course, it's all meaningless. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired, I refused. My heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labour. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so he just keeps looking at place after place after place where meaning could be found and meaning isn't found. I was working with a colleague some time ago and he was a project manager on a very large uh, building site down in, uh, in Sydney, around the harbour foreshore of Sydney. Uh, he spent five years of his life uh, as the project manager of this quite massive development which 20 years later was pulled down and a completely new one put in its place. What have I done with my life? I spent five years building something that lasted 20 and then has been destroyed and something else has been put there. What's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? Why, why did I do it? Now, you say, well, poor him, the Taj Mahal still there. and Why? The pyramids are still there. But what was the meaning of anybody doing any of these things? What was the purpose? Verse 17 of chapter 2. So I hated life because of the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after wind. I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. And this too is meaningless. You paint the ultimate, most beautiful painting in the world. You leave it to your grandchildren who use it as a backbone for, for finger painting with, you know. I mean, they just scribble all over the front. They just don't value what you have done. It's a problem of life, especially if you have grandchildren. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, skill, then he must leave it, all that he owns, to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All the days of his all his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest, and this too is meaningless. So you get this great search for meaning that runs all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and work is part of the way in which you can find meaning. But actually, when you analyse it, it's not meaningful. Now, our society doesn't read Ecclesiastes anymore. I don't know whether you do over here in Belfast, but Australians don't. And they now find their meaning in work, their career. That is what their meaning is in life. Their significance, their importance, their value, their identity is all caught in their career. That this is my meaning. But I tell you, you turn a golden age, whatever it might be, 68, they'll, they'll retire you. And no one will give a fig as to what you did all those years. As soon as you leave, it's as if you weren't there. They always say to you, well, come back and see us, you know, and if you turn back up two years later, six months, three weeks later, you're in embarrassment in the office. And anyway, that's if you get to retirement. You'll find people will tell you, you're really important, you're significant, you've got great opportunities, the world's at your feet, there's a downturn in the market and... I'm sorry, you've got to go. You don't matter. 
you're insignificant. Go find another job somewhere else. It's, it's psychobabble they're using on you to get you to work hard. See, when people are fully paid, fully housed, fully clothed, fully fed, there's no motivation to work any harder. And so the Human Relations Department, which is a kind of wicked name in itself, the HR department have used psychology to develop ways of making people work hard when they don't need to work at all. And the way to get them to work hard is to tell them how important they are, how vital they are, how important the work is they're doing, how significant they are. And that gets, I spoke to a lawyer uh, and he said yes, the key element of uh, getting you to work is to, to arrive in the office and have the senior partner come and say to you, that was a very good job you did. Just on those, those sentences, you will work so hard for the rest of the month because you are now important. You're a key part of the whole team. But I tell you, there's the slightest downturn in the economy, you'll be out. <laughs> You're not really a key to anything. You're just making money for them. And they're making money for shareholders who are sitting down on the beaches in Tenerife enjoying themselves. Because they don't make enough money to get to Australia and have a proper beach. Yeah. So what part does work play in a Christian's life? Well, I want you to turn across to the New Testament. And let's go to the worst of all workers, the slave, in Colossians chapter 3. Because there's a little phrase there in Colossians 3 that is, that is kind of lovely and I want to use as a heading. But it's a, it's a slave one. It's Colossians 3 and verse 23. Slaves obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you but to win their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So you're working... But whatever it is you're doing, you're a street sweeper, you're a lawyer, you're, you're, you're a politician, you're a journalist, whatever it is that you're doing, work hard at it because you are working for the Lord, because you are coming in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it as not for the boss, think of it as for the real boss, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that gives to Christians a work motivation. It gives to Christians a, a value of work that non-Christians don't necessarily have. It's the, the slave he's talking of, of course, but you work for the Lord. Now, come back. There's a lot of Bible flipping tonight, sorry. Galatians. Come back to Galatians. Because in chapter 4, that's chapter 4 in Galatians, we find something slightly different here in working for the Lord. Galatians 4.24, if I got it right, have I? No, that's not right. What am I doing that's wrong? Where is it that the thief is no longer to steal? Ephesians. It's Ephesians 4. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you. Much better. Ephesians 4, have I got the right verse number? No. Come on, find it for me, please. Let the thief, I can recite it for you, let the thief no longer steal, but rather do honest work with his hands in order to give to those in need. Where's that? 28. 28, thank you. Thank you very much. Have I got it right? 
He who has been stealing must, I learned a different translation, didn't I? Uh, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. There's a different motivation for work. Radically, dramatically different way. You're actually working, doing honest work now, still with your hands, because a thief works with their hands, but now instead of taking from others, you're now giving to others. Exact reverse is taking place here. But that brings into the into, into focus something that is fundamental about work and humanity. That is, the division of labour is an expression of the love of your neighbour. The division of labour is an expression of your love for your neighbour. So, if someone wasn't working, you met a Christian who wasn't working. The Bible says you should work and gives you reason for it. But where? Where would you get them? What part of the Bible would you turn to to get to encourage someone to go and work? 2 Thessalonians 3, turn it up. This is the passage which explains why Christians and how Christians are to work. 2 Thessalonians 3. Verse 6, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, and as I read this, I want you to think, why should you work? What is the argument that he uses for work? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we commend you, command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teachings you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring uh, and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people are, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, earn the bread they eat, and as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. What are the reasons for work? There's a whole string here, aren't there? The command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the example of the apostles, the commands of the apostles, the fact that it's not good to be idle, we're actually created to be busy, but also that you won't be a burden on other people, that you'll have enough to provide for yourself to eat, and that you will actually... Work is to, work's actually about feeding yourself, clothing yourself and housing yourself. And work is about doing it socially. I do my job and that helps you. You do your job, that helps me. Together we're able to live together. Subsistence farming is not the pattern for most of humanity and certainly not the pattern for us today. We've got all kinds of different jobs, even in this room now, there's all kinds of different jobs, each of which is a contribution to the other. I'll grow the vegetables, that's good because while you're growing the vegetables, I'll set up the electricity system. And that's good because while you're doing that, I'll be laying down the streets. And while you do that, I'll look after the plumbing. And while you do that, I'll... So we work together. And each needs to work for the whole system to work. Work has got to do with loving your neighbour by not being a burden on them, but rather contributing to them. 
And the whole exercise is to make sure we're all housed, we're all clothed, we're all fed. That's what work is about. It has a meaning, but its meaning is very basic fundamental existence. Not the careerist meaning that I am significant because I am a street sweeper. Now I say it that way because no one actually thinks they're going to be significant because they're street sweepers. But a Christian, a street sweeper, is just as important as a high court judge. Because we need both. Right? In fact, we most likely need the street sweeper more, don't we? And what he is doing, if he's doing honest work, is contributing to the welfare of other people and benefiting from it and not being a burden on the rest of us. It's a good thing. Work is a good thing. Work is loving your neighbour. And when you do it, I think you should do it like the slave is instructed to do it for the Lord. But there's a different thing in the scriptures. There's the work of the Lord. Everybody is to work. 2 Thessalonians 3 is very clear. Everybody's to work. No one's to be an idle busybody or an idler. No one is to do that. Everyone is to work. And even the young widow, she is to work by marrying again and having children and, and being busy at home with her family. Everybody is to work. But there are certain people who are freed from work and those are those who are doing the work of the Lord. Now, every Christian does the work of the Lord, but there are some who particularly are doing it. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the passage on the resurrection, long chapter. Right at the end of the chapter, I should have just told you to go 1 Corinthians 16 and turn back a verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brothers, in the light of all the resurrection, the age to come, the world that is yet to happen, the judgment day, the resurrection of the body, therefore, my brothers, in the light of all these things, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. The houses I build will be destroyed. The students I teach most likely will be uh, given the classroom, that class, most likely will not stand on the last day with the Lord. Uh, the, I, I shouldn't have used that as an illustration. I have to work on some other ones. Uh, the, the bridge I build will most likely not there. The drains that I cleaned, the streets that I swept, the, the corn that I grew, the, the market I ran, it's all gone. But the work of the Lord will last forever. It goes on into eternity. It's of a different order and character. What is the work of the Lord? My Sunday school class. That was the work of the Lord. And that will stand forever. That's, that's what's going to be on into eternity. For bridges and roads and houses, they don't go on into eternity. But the people of God do. The children of God do. And they will be there because I taught them in Sunday school. You see the work of the Lord is spelt out for us in chapter 16, verse 10. If Timothy comes, to, comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace that it, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. See, going around preaching the gospel is doing the work of the Lord. It's not just working for the Lord. It's doing the Lord's work. 
The Lord's work is a different thing than the human work. In our human work, we must do it as to the Lord. But in our work of the Lord, well, we're doing his work for him in this world. For God, in his mercy, chooses to work through us. Now, what is that work? Come back with me to Luke chapter 24. Those who were with us last night know that I started and finished with this passage. But let me remind it to you all again. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he lays out the three-stage plan of God in this world. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 44. 24, 44, he said to them, the disciples, "This uh, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. To say Moses, prophets, and the Psalms is the Jewish way of saying the Old Testament. I read must emphatically because it's emphatic in the Greek. It's a very little emphatic word that is stuck in there. This is not just what is going to happen or happens to happen. This is what must happen. It's got to happen. This is God's plan to happen and will happen. And that little word must governs then the next paragraph. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what was written. The Christ will, that's where the must covers it, the Christ will suffer and rise from the the dead on the third day. So the Old Testament, phase one, tells you what must happen. Phase two, when Christ comes, he will suffer, die and rise on the third day. And phase three, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. There is phase three. The phase two is very short, just the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but of course phase two is the the phase that makes everything else make sense. But all the Old Testament is written about the Christ suffering and dying. That's, That's why it's all there, so that we will understand what happens when the Lord Jesus comes. But once we've understood, because our eyes are open to understand the scriptures, then what happens for the rest of time is the preaching of the gospel to the world. In fact, the reason we've come to 2018 is because the preaching of the gospel hasn't finished to the world. How do I know that? Come across to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Oh, I found it quickly this time. Page 1224, 2 Peter chapter 3. Bockers have come saying, well, where's the end of the world? It hasn't come yet. I'm picking up verse 5, 2 Peter 3, 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But these waters, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear in the roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Why hasn't the end of the world come already? 
because the Lord is being patient, wanting people to come to repentance. So this third phase that we are in, starting with Jesus' death and resurrection and ending with Jesus' return in the judgment, is the age of repentance. It's the age of the preaching of the gospel. It's the reason why the world is still existing and hasn't been finished 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, or whatever, because God could return, at, Jesus could return at any time. Why he hasn't returned so far is to give you and me the opportunity of eternal life. You and me, life itself in our birth, you and me, the gospel and the message of salvation. And so, why do we preach the gospel? Well, come to 2 Corinthians and see Paul's motivations. 2 Corinthians. I'm heading up the home straight if you're heading to the point of starting asking questions by this sly method. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, 5, 6. Paul explains himself here. I'm going to Corinthians 5 first. 2 Corinthians 5. You know, people think you're mad to give up whatever job you're doing in order to preach the gospel full-time. They always think you're mad. And so verse 13, if we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you, Corinthian Christians. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see... Paul says, I'm doing what I'm doing because the love of Christ actually constrains me, compels me, forces me. I can't do anything else. What is this love of Christ? Well, this love of Christ is seen in his death. He died for all and therefore all died. I died my death in, in his death. He died my death for me. And why did he die my death for me? Because he loved me. Once I grasp the love of Christ, how can I go on living for myself anymore? It is the love of Christ that has overwhelmed me because it is my salvation. And not only my salvation, but the salvation of all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, why did he die for all? Verse 15, he died for all that we should no longer live for ourselves. Because that's the essence of sin, to live for yourself. No longer doing that. I can't live for myself and accept Jesus Christ as my Lord. And so, no longer live for myself, but now live for him who died for me and was raised again. It's just fundamentally to being a Christian, isn't it? That's why I suggested earlier, the call to Christian ministry actually is the call to be a Christian. There's not a second call for ministry. If you've understood the gospel properly, you can no longer live for yourself, but you must live for him. And so what is his work? His work is me teaching my Sunday school class. So the reason I work all week in my shop selling things, the reason I work all week in the factory making things, is so that I can turn up on Sunday morning and teach the children about the Lord Jesus Christ. My reason for living is not the work I'm doing in the factory. My reason for living is my Sunday school class. That's the bit that's going to go on to eternity. That's the bit that really matters. That's, that's what really is significant. So the ministry of the gospel, the work of the Lord, is the work that Christians are really engaged in. 
That's not to say we don't do the other work. The other work's really important in our loving of our neighbour and, uh, and in enabling us to get to our Sunday school class with clothes on. It's very bad to teach it without clothes on. So you've got to, you've got to have enough money to have your clothes so that you can teach your Sunday school class clothes. Right? And so that you're fed. So it's the basic fundamentals of life. But your meaning of life is not in your career, in your work, in, your, in how significant I am because I'm a this or a that or a something else. It's in my Sunday school class. Uh, look back in chapter 4 as Paul describes what he does. Chapter 4 verse uh, 6. No, 5. Where are we going? Where are we going? For we do not preach ourselves. It's not about us, you see. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's our message. And what about ourselves? And ourselves as your servants, actually the word is slaves there, as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Paul enslaves himself for the Corinthians. But why should he be a slave for the Corinthians? Well, he does it for Jesus' sake because he's a slave of Jesus. What does Jesus want me to do? He wants me to serve others. Huh? The message of Jesus is to serve other people. And he himself is exactly that. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Have this mind amongst yourself, which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and taking the form of a slave, again the word slave is in the Greek, he went to the cross. To, to enslave yourself for the benefit of other people is to be like Christ. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I don't give a fig about them. I think it's really important that I get my PhD. I mean, you, you can't understand Jesus and his death for others except it as one of the others for whom he died and then just not care about the others. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, blah, 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 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter, last verse, and then we'll go for the questions. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He preached the gospel, they got converted, he got chased out of town through persecution. He's worried about them, he sends uh, uh, Timothy back to look after them. Verse 17, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Because I live for Jesus, I live for others. Others become the meaning of my life. Others and their salvation becomes the meaning of my life. And when I come to that final day, what crown, what joy, what honour, what, what do I have to show for my years? The little boys and girls I prayed for in Sunday school and led to the Lord. The little children, the teenagers I led in the youth group who stood there. That, those people that I never met, but my missionary friends preached, preached the gospel. My prayers for their salvation, that'll be seen on the last day. This person, that person, 
They are my joy, they are my crown, they are my glory because that's what I was living for once I came into Christ Jesus. That's the reward. That's the, the joy of eternity. So my brothers and sisters, give up your small ambitions. Don't work for the things of this world. Work for the things of eternity. And if that means you're able to do it full time because your Christian brothers and sisters say you need to, you, you're, you're gifted. You know, let's pay for you to do it. Take the money and be very, very thankful for the privilege of spending your whole life doing what every other Christian needs to work to do. Terrific privilege. Brother, loads of questions. Go. We'll go quickly, will we? Good, yeah. um, we do want to draw stumps at half seven. Realise that uh, some of you have to go on now. I know there's growth groups and various things. Uh, and we also want to give a, a couple of moments for you to fill the uh, leaflet out. Philip, what do you make of the argument, I work, secular work, workplace, because it is an effective way to reach non-Christians with the gospel? No, it's not. It's an effective way to feed them, clothe them and house them and show your love and kindness to them. But most jobs will not allow you to spend time explaining the gospel of salvation to them. What advice would you give to those who have to work long hours and find this impacts their ability to share the gospel due to lack of time and energy? Migrate to Australia. We're richer. You don't have to work such long hours. Uh, it's sad that some people do live in such poverty that they can't do. See, our, our Ethiopian brothers, our Indian brothers, they don't have the privileges of wealth that we have that can enable us to go to colleges and let learn and have others pay for us to do the ministry. They work such long hours, they have very little opportunities to do other things. That's a great tragedy and a sadness. But by and large, in, I, in wealthy Belfast, that is not true and you need to find another job or lower your standard of living so that you'll be able to um, give your time to Christian ministry. Regarding everyone being involved in full-time ministry... By the way, the people who work longest hours these days are the high-paid professionals. And if you've got to work those long hours, that's a very good reason to give up that profession and choose something easier. This relates to this question. Everyone being involved in full-time ministry, how do, how do Paul's emphases on giftedness for teaching and James's warning about not many becoming teachers fit. Yes, that, that you are warned not to become teachers because you'll be judged in greater strictness is not an encouragement, a discouragement for teaching, it's an encouragement to make sure you do it in godliness and righteousness. It's like in Philippians, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 where it talks about what to be as an elder and not to do it for, for dishonest gain, not to do it this way. That's an encouragement to make sure you do it the right way that's being spoken of. Is it useful or a waste of time to seek to gain influence as a Christian in the secular workplace? Oh, it's not useless, it's not useless because you want to make the best contribution to the welfare of your, of your community. It's loving and kind to uh, take under, uh, undertake public office and, uh, and uh, have influence to make the workplace a better place for people to work, etc. But the more powerful you come in the secular workplace, the less you are able to speak. You see, if, you, if you're working, you can tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're the boss and you tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ, you're taken to anti-discrimination legislation because it's, you're actually, it's, it's a misuse of power. Uh, so we've, we rarely ever see people in power making a great Christian contribution. 
in my state at home uh, in New South Wales, uh, the Premier is a Christian, was a Christian, uh, the Deputy Premier is a Christian, the Governor of the state was a Christian, the Vice-Chancellor of the University was a Christian, the Police Commissioner was a Christian, the, the Governor of the Reserve Bank was a Christian, the Chairman of the Board of our Chief Media Organisation was a Christian, and it didn't make the slightest difference Christianly into our society. They had all the power was in the hands of evangelical Bible believers in a society that only has 2-3% Bible believers. But they could not, from those positions, make any benefit for our society Christianly. How do we change the culture of theological education being seen as the most important thing? That is, how do we show the importance of internship style training? or apprenticeship style training? Showing it to others doesn't matter. Make sure you get the benefit of it yourself. Okay. I'm speaking quickly because I've got yes, lots of questions. <laughs> if you work for food, clothing and shelter, should you work also for health care? <laughs> Depending if you're Mr. Obama or not, that is. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Healthcare is an important part of life and living and, and alleviating pain and giving people good health. They're all good things to do, yes. Would it be a problem if every Christian were in full time ministry? That's the last question. It wouldn't be a problem. It's just not going to happen. So it's a kind of silly, excuse me, saying. <laughs> Question. It's anonymous, anonymous question. Anonymous question. So you don't know who... Just, no idea. Let's see whose face lights up red now. It's a daft, stupid question. It's not going to happen. That's a theoretical nonsense. That's the kind of question where someone who's trying to find a reason not to do what they know they should. <laughs> Brother, thank you so much.